Part One of the Status Civilization by Robert Sheckley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Part One of the Status Civilization by Robert Sheckley. Chapter One His return to consciousness was a slow and painful process. It was a journey in which he traversed all time. He dreamed. He rose through thick layers of sleep out of the imaginary beginnings of all things. He lifted like a pseudopod from primordial ooze, and the pseudopod was him. He became an amoeba, which contained his essence. Then a fish, marked with his own peculiar individuality. Then an ape, unlike all other apes. And finally, he became a man. What kind of man? Dimly he saw himself faceless, a beamer gripped tight in one hand, a corpse at his feet. That kind of man. He awoke, rubbed his eyes, and waited for further memories to come. No memories came. Not even his name. He sat up hastily and willed memory to return. When it didn't, he looked around, seeking in his surroundings some clue to his identity. He was sitting on a bed in a small gray room. There was a closed door on one side. On the other, through a curtained alcove, he could see a tiny lavatory. Light came into the room from some hidden source, perhaps from the ceiling itself. The room had a bed and a single chair and nothing else. He held his chin in his hand and closed his eyes. He tried to catalogue all his knowledge and the implications of that knowledge. He knew that he was a man, species Homo sapiens, an inhabitant of the planet Earth. He spoke a language which he knew was English. Did that mean there were other languages? He knew the commonplace names for things, room, light, chair. He possessed, in addition, a limited amount of general knowledge. He knew that there were many important things which he did not know, which he once had known. Something must have happened to me. That something could have been worse. If it had gone a little further, he might have been left a mindless creature without a language, unaware of being human, of being a man, of being of earth. A certain amount had been left to him. but. When he tried to think beyond the basic facts in his possession, he came to a dark and horror-filled area. Do not enter. Exploration into his own mind was as dangerous as a journey to what? He couldn't find an analog, though he suspected that many existed. I must have been sick. That was the only reasonable explanation. He was a man with the recollection of memories. He must at one time have had that priceless wealth of recall which now he could only deduce from the limited evidence at his disposal. At one time he must have had specific memories of birds, trees, friends, family, status, a wife perhaps. Now he could only theorize about them. Once he had been able to say, this is like, or that reminds me of, now nothing reminded him of anything, and things were only like themselves. 
He had lost his powers of contrast and comparison. He could no longer analyze the present in terms of the experienced past. This must be a hospital. Of course. He was being cared for in this place. Kindly doctors were working to restore his memory, to replace his identity, to restore his judgment apparatus, to tell him who and what he was. It was very good of them. He felt tears of gratitude start in his eyes. He stood up and walked slowly around his room. He went to the door and found it locked. That locked door gave him a moment of panic, which he sternly controlled. Perhaps he had been violent. Well, he wouldn't be violent any more. They'd see. They would award him all possible patient privileges. He would speak about that with the doctor. He waited. After a long time, he heard footsteps coming down the corridor outside his door. He sat on the edge of the cot and listened, trying to control his excitement. The footsteps stopped beside his door. A panel slid open and a face peered in. How are you feeling? the man asked. He walked up to the panel and saw that the man who questioned him was dressed in a brown uniform. He had an object on his waist which could be identified after a moment as a weapon. This man was undoubtedly a guard. He had a blunt, unreadable face. Could you tell me my name? he asked the guard. Call yourself 402, the guard said. That's your cell number. He didn't like it, but 402 was better than nothing at all. He asked the guard, Have I been sick for long? Am I getting better? Yes, the guard said in a voice that carried no conviction. The important thing is to stay quiet, obey the rules. That's the best way. Certainly, said 402, but why can't I remember anything? Well, that's the way it goes, the guard said. He started to walk away. 402 called after him. Wait! You can't just leave me like this. You have to tell me something. What happened to me? Why am I in this hospital? Hospital, the guard said. He turned toward 402 and grinned. What gave you the idea this was a hospital? I assumed it, 402 said. You assumed wrong. This is a prison. 402 remembered his dream of the murdered man. Dream or memory? Desperately he called after the guard. What was my offense? What did I do? You'll find out, the guard said. When? After we land, the guard said. Now get ready for assembly. He walked away. 402 sat down on the bed and tried to think. He had learned a few things. He was in a prison, and the prison was going to land. What did that mean? Why did a prison have to land? And what was an assembly? 402 had only a confused idea of what happened next. An unmeasurable amount of time passed. He was sitting on his bed trying to piece together facts about himself. He had an impression of bells ringing, and then the door of his cell flew open. Why was that? What did it mean? 402 walked to the door and peered into the corridor. He was very excited, but he didn't want to leave the security of his cell. He waited, and the guard came up. All right now, the guard said. No one's going to hurt you. Go straight down the corridor. The guard pushed him gently. 402 walked down the corridor. 
He saw other cell doors opening, other men coming into the corridor. It was a thin stream at first, but as he continued walking, more and more men crowded into the passageway. Most of them looked bewildered, and none of them talked. The only words were from the guards. Move along now, keep on moving, straight ahead. They were headed into a large circular auditorium. Looking around, 402 saw that a balcony ran around the room, and armed guards were stationed every few yards along it. Their presence seemed unnecessary. These cowled and bewildered men weren't going to stage a revolt. Still, he supposed the grim-faced guards had a symbolic value. They reminded the newly awakened men of the most important fact of their lives, that they were prisoners. After a few minutes, a man in a somber uniform stepped out on the balcony. He held up his hand for attention, although the prisoners were already watching him fixedly. Then, though he had no visible means of amplification, his voice boomed hollowly through the auditorium. This is an indoctrination talk, he said. Listen carefully and try to absorb what I am about to tell you. These facts will be very important for your existence. The prisoners watched him. The speaker said, All of you have within the last hour awakened in your cells. You have discovered that you cannot remember your former lives, not even your names. All you possess is a meager store of generalized knowledge, enough to keep you in touch with reality. I will not add to your knowledge. All of you back on Earth were vicious and depraved criminals. You were people of the worst sort, men who had forfeited any right to consideration by the State. In a less enlightened age you would have been executed. In our age you have been deported." The speaker held out his hands to quiet the murmur that ran through the auditorium. He said, "'All of you are criminals, and all of you have one thing in common, an inability to obey the basic obligatory rules of human society. Those rules are necessary for civilization to function. By disobeying them you have committed crimes against all mankind. Therefore, mankind rejects you. You are grit in the machinery of civilization, and you have been sent to a world where your own sort is king. Here you can make your own rules and die by them. Here is the freedom you lusted for, the uncontained and self-destroying freedom of a cancerous growth." The speaker wiped his forehead and glared earnestly at the prisoners. But perhaps, he said, a rehabilitation is possible for some of you. Omega, the planet to which we are going, is your planet, a place ruled entirely by prisoners. It is a world where you could begin again, with no prejudices against you, a clean record. Your past lives are forgotten. Don't try to remember them. Such memories would serve only to re-stimulate your criminal tendencies. Consider yourselves born afresh, as of the moment of awakening in your cells." The speaker's slow, measured words had a certain hypnotic quality. 402 listened, his eyes slightly unfocused and fixed upon the speaker's pale forehead. "'A new world,' the speaker was saying. "'You are reborn, but with the necessary consciousness of sin. Without it you would be unable to combat the evil inherent in your personalities. Remember that. Remember that there is no escape and no return. Guardships armed with the latest beam weapons patrol the skies of Omega day and night. 
These ships are designed to obliterate anything that rises more than five hundred feet above the surface of the planet, an invincible barrier through which no prisoner can ever pass. Accommodate yourselves to these facts. They constitute the rules which must govern your lives. Think about what I've said, and now stand by for landing." The speaker left the balcony. For a while the prisoners simply stared at the spot where he had been. Then, tentatively, a murmur of conversation began. After a while it died away. There was nothing to talk about. The prisoners, without memory of the past, had nothing upon which to base a speculation of the future. Personalities could not be exchanged, for those personalities were newly emerged and still undefined. They sat in silence, uncommunicative men who had been too long in solitary confinement. The guards on the balcony stood like statues, remote and impersonal. And then the faintest tremor ran through the floor of the auditorium. The tremor came again, then it changed into a definite vibration. 402 felt heavier, as though an invisible weight were pressing against his head and shoulders. A loudspeaker voice called out, Attention! The ship is now landing on Omega. We will disembark shortly. The last vibration died away, and the floor beneath them gave a slight lurch. The prisoners, still silent and dazed, were formed into a long line and marched out of the auditorium. Flanked by guards, they went down a corridor which stretched on interminably. From it, 402 began to get some idea of the size of the ship. Far ahead he could see a patch of sunlight which shone brightly against the pale illumination of the corridor. His section of the long shuffling line reached the sunlight, and 402 saw that it came from an open hatchway through which the prisoners were passing. In his turn, 402 went through the hatchway, climbed down a long stairway, and found himself on solid ground. He was standing in an open, sunlit square. Guards were forming the disembarked prisoners into files. On all sides, 402 could see a crowd of spectators watching. A loudspeaker voice boomed. Answer when your number is called. Your identity will now be revealed to you. Answer promptly when your number is called. 402 felt weak and very tired. Not even his identity could interest him now. All he wanted to do was lie down, to sleep, to have a chance to think about his situation. He looked around and took casual note of the huge starcraft behind him, of the guards, the spectators. Overhead he saw black dots moving against a blue sky. At first he thought they were birds, then, looking closer, he saw they were guard ships. He wasn't particularly interested in them. Number one, speak out. Here, a voice answered. Number one, your name is Wayne Southholder, age thirty-four, blood type AL2, index AR431C, guilty of treason. When the voice had finished, a loud cheer came up from the crowd. They were applauding the prisoner's traitorous actions and welcoming him to Omega. The names were read down the list, and 402, drowsy in the sunshine, dozed on his feet and listened to the crimes of murder, credit theft, deviationalism, and mutantism. At last his number was called. Number 402? Here? Number 402, your name is Will Berent, age 27, blood type OL3, index JX221R, guilty of murder. 
The crowd cheered, but 402 scarcely heard them. He was trying to accustom himself to the idea of having a name, a real name instead of a number. Will Barrent. He hoped he wouldn't forget it. He repeated the name to himself over and over again, and almost missed the last announcement from the ship's loudspeaker. The new men are now released upon Omega. You will be given temporary housing at Square A-2. Be cautious and circumspect in your words and actions. Watch, listen, and learn. The law requires me to tell you that the average life expectancy on Omega is approximately three Earth years. It took a while for those last words to take effect on Barrent. He was still contemplating the novelty of having a name. He hadn't considered any of the implications of being a murderer on an underworld planet. Chapter 2 The new prisoners were led to a row of barracks at Square A-2. There were nearly five hundred of them. They were not yet men, they were entities whose true memories extended barely an hour in time. Sitting on their bunks, the newborns looked curiously at their bodies, examined with sharp interest their hands and feet. They stared at each other and saw their formlessness mirrored in each other's eyes. They were not yet men, but they were not children either. Certain abstractions remained, and the ghosts of memories. Maturation came quickly, born of old habit, patterns, and personality traits, retained in the broken threads of their former lives on Earth. The new men clung to the vague recollections of concepts, ideas, rules. Within a few hours their phlegmatic blandness had begun to pass. They were becoming men now, individuals. Out of a dazed and superficial conformity sharp differences began to emerge. Characters reasserted itself, and the five hundred began to discover what they were. Will Barrent stood in line for a look at himself in the barracks mirror. When his turn came he saw the reflection of a thin-faced, narrow-nosed, pleasant-looking young man with straight brown hair. The young man had a resolute, honest, unexceptional face, unmarked by any strong passion. Barrent turned away, disappointed. It was the face of a stranger. Later, examining himself more closely, he could find no scars or anything else to distinguish his body from a thousand other bodies. His hands were uncalloused. He was wiry rather than muscular. He wondered what sort of work he had done on Earth. Murder? He frowned. He wasn't ready to accept that. A man tapped him on the shoulder. How you feeling? Barrent turned and saw a large, thick-shouldered, red-haired man standing beside him. Pretty good, Barrent said. You were in line behind me, weren't you? That's right. Number 401. Name's Danis Forin. Barrent introduced himself. Your crime? Forin asked. Murder. Forin nodded, looking impressed. Me? I'm a forger. Wouldn't think it to look at my hands. He held out two massive paws covered with sparse red hair. But the skills there, my hands remembered before any other part of me. On the ship I sat in my cell and looked at my hands. They itched. They wanted to be off and doing things, but the rest of me couldn't remember what. What did you do? Barrent asked. I closed my eyes and let my hands take over, Foran said. 
First thing I knew, they were up and picking the lock of the cell. He held up his huge hands and looked at them admiringly. Clever little devils. Picking the lock? Barrent asked. But I thought you were a forger. Well, now, Foran said, forgery was my main line, but a pair of skilled hands can do almost anything. I suspect that I was only caught for forgery, but I might also have been a safe man. My hands know too much for just a forger. You've found out more about yourself than I have, Barrent said. All I have to start with is a dream. Well, that's a start, Foran said. There must be ways of finding out more. The important thing is, we're on Omega. Agreed, Barrent said sourly. Nothing wrong with that, Foran said. Didn't you hear what the man said? This is our planet. With an average life expectancy of three Earth years, Barrent reminded him. That's probably just scare talk, Foran said. I wouldn't believe stuff like that from a guard. The big thing is we have our own planet. You heard what they said. Earth rejects us. Nova Earth. Who needs her? We've our own planet here, a whole planet, Barrent. We're free. Another man said, That's right, friend. He was small, furtivide, and ingratiatingly friendly. My name is Joe, he told them. Actually, the name is Joa, but I prefer the archaic form with its flavor of more gracious times. Gentlemen, I couldn't help overhearing your conversation, and I agree most heartily with our red-haired friend. Consider the possibilities. Earth has cast us aside. Excellent. We are better off without her. We are all equal here, free men in a free society. No uniforms, no guards, no soldiers. Just repentant former criminals who want to live in peace. What did they get you for? Barrent asked. They said I was a credit thief, Joe said. I'm ashamed to admit that I can't remember what a credit thief is, but perhaps it'll come back to me. Maybe the authorities have some sort of memory retraining system, Foran said. Authorities, Joe said indignantly. What do you mean, authorities? This is our planet. We're all equal here. By definition, there can't be any authorities. No, friends, we left all that nonsense behind on Earth. Here we— He stopped abruptly. The barracks door had opened and a man walked in. He was evidently an older resident of Omega since he lacked the gray prison uniform. He was fat and dressed in garish yellow and blue clothing. On a belt around his ample waist he carried a holstered pistol and a knife. He stood just inside the doorway, his hands on his hips, glaring at the new arrivals. "'Well,' he said, "'don't you new men recognize a Quaestor? Stand up!' None of the men moved. The Quaestor's face went scarlet. "'I guess I'll have to teach you a little respect!' Even before he had taken his weapon from its holster, the new arrivals had scrambled to their feet. The Quaestor looked at them with a faintly regretful air and pushed the weapon back in its holster. The first thing you men better learn, the Quaestor said, is your status on Omega. Your status is nowhere. You're peons, and that means you're nothing. He waited a moment and then said, Now, pay attention, peons. You are about to be instructed in your duties. 
Chapter 3 The first thing you new men should understand, the Quaestor said, is just exactly what you are. That's very important, and I'll tell you what you are. You're peons. You're the lowest of the low. You're statusless. There's nothing lower except mutants, and they aren't really human. Any questions? The Quaestor waited. When there were no questions, he said, I've defined what you are. From that, we'll proceed to a basic understanding of what everybody else on Omega is. First of all, everybody is more important than you. But some are more important than others. Next above you in rank is the resident, who hardly counts for more than any of you, and then there's the free citizen. He wears a gray finger-ring of status, and his clothes are black. He isn't important either, but he's much more important than you. With luck, some of you may become free citizens. Next are the privileged classes, all distinguished by various recognition symbols according to rank, such as the golden earrings, for example, of the Haji class. Eventually you'll learn all the marks and prerogatives of the various ranks and degrees. I might also mention the priests. Even though they're not of privileged rank, they're granted certain immunities and rights. Have I made myself clear?" Everyone in the barracks mumbled assent. The Quaestor continued. Now we come to the subject of deportment when meeting anyone of superior rank. As peons, you are obliged to greet a free citizen by his full title, in a respectful manner. With privileged ranks such as Haji's, you speak only when spoken to, and then you stand with eyes downcast and hands clasped in front of you. You do not leave the presence of a privileged citizen until permission has been granted. You do not sit in his company under any circumstances. Understood? There is much more to be learned. My office of Quaestor, for example, comes under the classification of free citizen, but carries certain of the prerogatives of privilege. The Quaestor glared at the men to make sure they understood. This barracks is your temporary home. I have drawn up a chart to show which men sweep, which wash, and so forth. You may question me at any time, but foolish or impertinent questions can be punished by mutilation or death. Just remember that you are the lowest of the low. If you bear that in mind, you might be able to stay alive. The Quaestor stood in silence for a few moments. Then he said, Over the next few days you'll all be given various assignments. Some of you will go to the germanium mines, some to the fishing fleet, some will be apprenticed to various trades. In the meantime, you're free to look around Tetrahyde. When the men looked blank, the Quaestor explained, Tetrahyde is the name of the city you're in. It's the largest city on Omega, he thought for a moment. In fact, it's the only city on Omega. What does the name Tetrahyde mean? Joe asked. How should I know? The Quaestor said, scowling. I suppose it's one of those old birth names the Skrenners are always coming up with. Anyhow, just watch your step when you enter it. Why? Berent asked. The Quaestor grinned. That, peon, is something you'll have to find out for yourself. He turned and strode from the barracks. When he had gone, Berent went to the window. From it he could see a deserted square and beyond the streets of Tetrahyde. You thinking of going out there? Joe asked. Certainly I am, Brent said. Coming with me? 
The little credit thief shook his head. I don't think it's safe. Foran, how about you? I don't like it either, Foran said. Might be better to stay around the barracks for a while. That's ridiculous, Barrent said. It's our city now. Isn't anyone coming with me? Looking uncomfortable, Foran hunched his big shoulders and shook his head. Joe shrugged and lay back on his cot. The rest of the new men didn't even look up. Very well, Barrent said. I'll give you a full report later. He waited a moment longer in case someone changed his mind, then went out the door. The city of Tetrahyde was a collection of buildings sprawled along a narrow peninsula which jutted into a sluggish gray sea. The peninsula's landward side was contained by a high stone wall, pierced with gates and guarded by sentries. Its largest building was the arena, used once a year for the games. Near the arena was a small cluster of government buildings. Barrent walked along the narrow streets, staring around him, trying to get some idea of what his new home was like. The winding, unpaved roads and dark, weather-beaten houses stirred an elusive tag-end of memory in him. He had seen a place like this on Earth, but he couldn't remember anything about it. The recollection was as tantalizing as an itch, but he couldn't locate its source. Past the arena, he came into the main business district of Tetrahyde. Fascinated, he read the store signs. Unlicensed doctor. Abortions performed. While you wait. Further on. Disbarred lawyer. Political pull. This seemed vaguely wrong to Barrent. He walked further, past stores advertising stolen goods, past a little shop that announced mind readings. Full staff of screnning mutants, your past on earth revealed. Barrent was tempted to go in, but he remembered that he hadn't any money, and Omega seemed like the sort of place that put a high value on money. He turned down a side street, walked by several restaurants, and came to a large building called the Poison Institute. Easy terms, up to three years to pay, satisfaction guaranteed, or your money back. Next door to it was the Assassin's Guild, local 452. On the basis of the indoctrination talk on the prison ship, Barrent had expected Omega to be dedicated to the rehabilitation of criminals. To judge by the store signs, this simply wasn't so. Or, if it was, rehabilitation took some very strange forms. He walked on more slowly, deep in thought. Then he noticed that people were moving out of his way. They glanced at him and ducked into doorways and stores. An elderly woman took one look at him and ran. What was wrong? Could it be his prison uniform? No, the people of Omega had seen many of those. What was it, then? The street was almost deserted. A shopkeeper near him was hurriedly swinging steel shutters over his display of fencing equipment. What's the matter? Barrent asked him. What, what's going on? Are you out of your head? the shopkeeper said. It's landing day. I beg your pardon? Landing day, the shopkeeper said. The day the prison ship landed. Get back to your barracks, you idiot. He slammed the last steel shutter into place and locked it. Barrent felt a sudden cold touch of fear. Something was very wrong. He had better get back in a hurry. It had been stupid of him not to find out more about Omegan customs before— 
Three men were walking down the street toward him. They were well-dressed, and each wore the small golden haji earring in his left ear. All three men carried sidearms. Barrent started to walk away from them. One of the men shouted, Stop, peon! Barrent saw that the man's hand was dangling near his gun. He stopped and said, What's the matter? It's landing day, the man said. He looked at his friends. Well, who gets him first? We'll choose. Here's a coin. No, a show of fingers. Ready? One, two, three. He's mine, said the Haji on the left. His friends moved back as he drew his sidearm. Wait, Barrent called out. What are you doing? I'm going to shoot you, the man said. But why? The man smiled. Because it's a Haji privilege. On every landing day, we have the right to shoot down any new peon who leaves his barracks area. But I wasn't told. Of course not, the man said. If you new men were told, none of you would leave your barracks on landing day, and that would spoil all the fun. He took aim. Barrent reacted instantaneously. He threw himself to the ground as the Haji fired heard a hiss, and saw a jagged heat-burn score the brick building next to which he had been standing. "'My turn now,' one of the men said. "'Sorry, old man, I, I believe it's mine. Signori, dear friend, has its privileges. Stand clear.' Before the next man could take aim, Barrent was on his feet and running. The sharply winding street protected him for the moment, but he could hear the sounds of his pursuers behind him. They were running at an easy stride, almost a fast walk, as if they were completely sure of their prey. Barrent put on a burst of speed, turned down a side street, and knew immediately he had made a mistake. He was facing a dead end. The Hajis, moving at an easy pace, were coming up behind him. Barrent looked wildly around. Storefronts here were all locked and shuttered. There was nowhere he could climb to, no, no place to hide. And then he saw an open door halfway down the block in the direction of his pursuers. He had run right by it. A sign protruding from the building above the doorway said, The Victim's Protective Society. That's for me, Barrent thought. He sprinted for it, running almost under the noses of the startled Hodges. A single gun blast scorched the ground under his heels. Then he had reached the doorway and flung himself inside. He scrambled to his feet. His pursuers had not followed him. He could still hear their voices in the street, amiably arguing questions of precedence. Barrent realized he had entered some sort of sanctuary. He was in a large, brightly lighted room. Several ragged men were sitting on a bench near the door, laughing at a private joke. A little further down, a dark-haired girl sat and watched Barrent with wide, unblinking green eyes. At the far end of the room was a desk with a man sitting behind it. The man beckoned to Barrent. He walked up to the desk. The man behind it was short and bespectacled. He smiled encouragingly, waiting for Barrent to speak. "'This is the Victim's Protective Society?' Barrent asked. "'Quite correct, sir,' the man said. "'I am Rondolf Friendlier, president of this non-profit organization. Uh, could I be of service?' "'You certainly could,' Barrent said. "'I'm practically a victim.' "'I knew that just by looking at you.' Friend Lyer said, smiling warmly. You have a certain victim look. 
a mixture of fear and uncertainty, with just a suggestion of vulnerability thrown in. It's quite unmistakable." That's very interesting, Barrent said, glancing toward the door and wondering how long his sanctuary would be respected. Mr. Friendlier, I'm not a member of your organization. That doesn't matter, Friendlier said. Membership in our group is necessarily spontaneous. One joins when the occasion arises. Our intention is to protect the inalienable rights of all victims. Yes, sir. Well, there are three men outside trying to kill me. I see, Mr. Friendlier said. He opened a drawer and took out a large book. He flipped through it quickly and found the reference he wanted. Tell me, did you ascertain the status of these men? I believe they were Hodges, Brent said. Each of them had a little gold earring in his left ear. Quite right, Mr. Friendlier said, and today is landing day. You came off the ship that landed today and have been classified as a peon, is that correct? Yes, it, it is, Barrent said. Then I'm happy to say that everything is in order. The landing day hunt ends at sundown. You can leave here with the knowledge that everything is correct and that your rights are in no way being violated. Leave here? A after sundown, you mean? Mr. Friendlier shook his head and smiled sadly. I'm afraid not. According to the law, you must leave here at once. But they'll kill me. That's very true, Friendlier said. Unfortunately, it can't be helped. A victim, by definition, is one who is to be killed. I thought this was a protective organization. It is, but we protect rights, not victims. Your rights are not being violated. The Hajis have the privilege of killing you on landing day at any time before sundown if you are not in your barracks area. You, I might add, have the right to kill anyone who tries to kill you. I don't have a weapon, Barrent said. Victims never do, Friendlier said. It makes all the difference, doesn't it? But weapon or not, I'm afraid you'll have to leave now. Barrent could still hear the Hajis' lazy voices in the street. He asked, Have you a rear door? Sorry. Then I'll simply not leave. Still smiling, Mr. Friendlier opened a drawer and took out a gun. He pointed it at Barrent and said, You really must leave. You can take your chances with the Hajis, or you can die right here with no chance at all. Lend me your gun, Barrent said. It isn't allowed, Friendlier told him. Can't have victims running around with weapons, you know. It would upset things. He clicked off the safety. Are you leaving? Barrent calculated his chances of diving across the desk for the gun and decided he would never make it. He turned and walked slowly to the door. The ragged men were still laughing together. The dark-haired girl had risen from the bench and was standing near the doorway. As he came close to her, Barrent noticed that she was very lovely. He wondered what crime had dictated her expulsion from Earth. As he passed her, he felt something hard pressed into his ribs. He reached for it and found he was holding a small, efficient-looking gun. Look, the girl said, and I hope you know how to use it. Barrent nodded his thanks. He wasn't sure he knew how, but he was going to find out. Chapter 4 the street was deserted except for the three Hajis, who stood about twenty yards away, conversing quietly. As Barrent came through the doorway, two of the men moved back. The third, his sidearm negligently lowered, stepped forward. 
When he saw that Barrent was armed, he quickly brought his gun into firing position. Barrent flung himself to the ground and pressed the trigger of his unfamiliar weapon. He felt it vibrate in his hand and saw the Haji's head and shoulders turn black and begin to crumble. Before he could take aim at the other men, Barrent's gun was wrenched violently from his hand. The Haji's dying shot had creased the end of the muzzle. Desperately, Barrent dived for the gun, knowing he could never reach it in time. His skin pricked in expectation of the killing shot. He rolled to his gun, still miraculously alive, and took aim at the nearest Haji. Just in time, he checked himself from firing. The Hajis had holstered their weapons. One of them was saying, Poor old Draken. He simply could not learn to take quick aim. Lack of practice, the other man said. Draken never spent much time on the firing range. Well, if you ask me, it's a good object lesson. One mustn't get out of practice. And, the other man said, one mustn't underestimate even a peon. He looked at Barrent. Nice shooting, fellow. Yes, very nice indeed, the other man said. It's difficult to fire a handgun accurately while in motion. Barrent got to his feet shakily, still holding the girl's weapon, prepared to fire at the first suspicious movement from the Hajis. But they weren't moving suspiciously. They seemed to regard the entire incident as closed. What happens now? Barrent asked. Nothing, one of the Hajis said. On landing day, one kill is all that any man or hunting party is allowed. After that, you're out of the hunt. It's really a very unimportant holiday the other man said. Not like the games or the lottery. All that remains for you to do, the first man said, is to go to the registration office and collect your inheritance. My what? Your inheritance, the Haji said patiently. You're entitled to the entire estate of your victim. In Draken's case, I'm sorry to say, it doesn't amount to much. He never was a good businessman, the other said sadly. Still, it'll give you a little something to start life with. And since you've made an authorized kill, even though a highly unusual one, you move upward in status. You become a free citizen. People had come back into the streets, and shopkeepers were unlocking their steel shutters. A truck marked Body Disposal Unit 5 drove up, and four uniformed men took away Draken's body. The normal life of Tetrahyde had begun again. This, more than any assurances from the Hajis, told Barrent that the moment for murder was over. He put the girl's weapon in his pocket. The registration office is over this way, one of the Hajis told him. We'll act as your witnesses. Barrent still had only a limited understanding of the situation, but since things were suddenly going his way, he decided to accept whatever happened without question. There would be plenty of time later to find out where he stood. Accompanied by the Hajis, he went to the registration office on Gunpoint Square. There, a bored clerk heard the entire story, produced Draken's business papers, and pasted Barrent's name over Draken's. Barrent noticed that several other names had been pasted over. There seemed to be a fast turnover of businesses in Tetrahyde. He found that he was now the owner of an antidote shop at Three Blazer Boulevard. The business papers also officially recognized Barrent's new rank as a free citizen. The clerk gave him a ring of status made of gunmetal, and advised him to change into citizen's clothing as soon as possible if he wished to avoid unpleasant incidents. 
Outside, the Hadjis wished him luck. Barrent decided to see what his new business was like. Blazer Boulevard was a short alley running between two streets. Near the middle of it was a storefront with a sign which read, Antidote Shop. Beneath that it read, Specifics for every poison, whether animal, vegetable, or mineral. Carry our handy do-it-yourself survival kit. Twenty-three antidotes in one pocket-sized container. Barrent opened the door and went in. Behind a low counter he saw ceiling-high shelves stocked with labeled bottles, cans, and cartons, and square-glass jaws containing odd bits of leaves, twigs, and fungus. In the back corner was a small shelf of books with titles like Quick Diagnosis in Acute Poisoning Cases, The Arsenic Family, and The Permutations of Henbane. It was quite obvious that poisoning played a large part in the daily life of Omega. Here was a store, and presumably there were others, whose sole purpose was to dispense antidotes. Barrent thought about this and decided that he had inherited a strange but honorable business. He would study the books and find out how an antidote shop was run. The store had a back apartment with a living room, bedroom, and kitchen. In one of the closets, Barrent found a badly made suit of Citizen Black, into which he changed. He took the girl's weapon from the pocket of his prison ship uniform, weighed it in his hand for a moment, then put it into a pocket of his new suit. He left the store and found his way back to the Victim's Protective Society. The door was still open, and the three ragged men were still sitting on the bench. They weren't laughing now. Their long wait seemed to have tired them. At the other end of the room, Mr. Friendlier was seated behind his desk, reading through a thick pile of papers. There was no sign of the girl. Barrent walked to the desk, and Friendlier stood up to greet him. My congratulations, Friendlier said. Dear fellow, my very warmest congratulations. That was a splendid bit of shooting, and in motion, too. Thank you, Barrent said. The reason I came back here. I know why. Friend Lyer said. You wish to be advised of your rights and obligations as a free citizen. What could be more natural? If you take a seat on that bench, I'll be with you in— I didn't come here for that, Barrent said. I want to find out about my rights and obligations, of course, but right now I want to find that girl. Girl? She was sitting on the bench when I came in. She was the one who gave me the gun. Mr. Friend Lyer looked astonished. Citizen, you must be laboring under misapprehension. There has been no woman in this office all day. She was sitting on the bench near those three men, a very attractive dark-haired girl. You must have noticed her. I would certainly have noticed her if she had been here, Friend Lyer said, winking. But, as I said before, no woman has entered these premises today. Barrent glared at him and pulled the gun out of his pocket. In that case... How did I get this? I lent it to you, Friend Lyer said. I'm glad you were able to use it successfully, but now I would appreciate its return. You're lying, Barrent said, taking a firm grip on the weapon. Let's ask those men. He walked over to the bench with Friend Lyer close behind him. He caught the attention of the man who had been sitting nearest the girl and asked him, Where did the girl go? The man lifted a sullen, unshaven face and said, what girl you talking about, citizen? The one who was sitting right here. 
I didn't notice nobody. Raphael, you see a female on this bench? Not me, Raphael said, and I've been sitting here continuous since ten this morning. I didn't see her neither, the third man said, and I got sharp eyes. Berent turned back to Friend Liar. Why are you lying to me? I've told you the simple truth, Friend Liar said. There has been no girl in here all day. I lent you the gun, as is my privilege as President of the Victim's Protective Society. I would now appreciate its return." No, Berent said. I'm keeping the gun until I find the girl. That might not be wise, Friendlier said. He hastily added, thievery, I mean, is not condoned under these circumstances. I'll take my chances on that, Berent said. He turned and left the Victim's Protective Society. End of Part One of The Status Civilization by Robert Sheckley.